be reading this evening uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through verse 13. Once again, let's announce the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews 8, verse 6. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His Word. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this uh, passage and this uh, topic that we will be considering this evening. And we just pray that You would give us understanding to the truth of Your Word. And help us to understand better your covenants you've made with your people uh, to secure our salvation and our hope through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we just pray now for your blessing upon our time. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well previously we've noted that God has made a variety of uh, covenants with mankind. And, of course, the very first covenant was the covenant of works, or sometimes called the covenant of life. And this was between God and and Adam in the garden. And, of course, our father Adam failed to to keep that covenant and thus plunged all of humanity into a state of sin and misery because Adam functioned as our uh, our federal head, as our uh, representative in that covenant. Well, then God graciously, as we considered last time, God graciously made a second covenant, uh, the covenant of grace. Uh, Jesus Christ, of course, would be the mediator of this second covenant, and here Christ represents us before God. And so Adam, as the first Adam, represented mankind in the covenant of works, and Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, represents Uh, God's people in this covenant of grace. Well, Jesus in that accomplished on our behalf what we couldn't uh, because of our sin, and that is especially the obligation to perfectly keep the law of God. But not only did Jesus meet the demands of the covenant of works, but he also submitted himself And he endured the wrath and curse that we deserve because of our sin and because of our violation of God's covenant. 
that Christ endured that for us. And so in Adam's sin, we all were condemned, but in Christ's perfect righteousness, his elect are redeemed and secured. For in this covenant of grace, the righteousness of Christ is now graciously applied to undeserving sinners, bringing them into communion and fellowship with God, their Creator. Now, again, as we considered last time, from that very first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, where the seed the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, from that promise onward, the Scriptures then reveal the outworking of the covenant of grace. Most fully, however, we see the fulfillment and accomplishment of accomplishment of the covenant obligations and the applications of the covenant promises in the new testament and again coming to fruition in the person and the work of the lord jesus christ and so here we want to note the connection between the word covenant and the word testament in paragraph four of the westminster confession it says this this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance, with all things belonging to it therein bequeath. Now, many people, uh, we know, before they die, they'll write a last will and testament. And that document is basically to inform uh, any survivors after the person's death uh, what their will is for all their earthly belongings. They specify, in other words, they specify who is to get what. But in order for a last will and testament to take effect, there needs to be the death of the one who made it. You can't cash it in early, so to speak. And so the confession, and as we'll see also the scriptures, is making a parallel to God's covenant of grace. The covenant of grace reveals God's will for his people, and it lays out all the blessings and the eternal inheritances that we are to receive in Christ. But these aren't effective unless there has first been the death of the one who made it. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he then guaranteed and made the covenant of grace and all its promises and benefits effective for God's people. Then, of course, with his resurrection from the dead on the third day, he was then able to apply it to to, uh, sinners uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, this is the very understanding that the writer to the Hebrews gives in uh, Hebrews 9, uh, verses 15 to 17. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. And so Jesus, the Son of God, made this covenant and engaged in it on our behalf. And the scriptures, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, reveal the blessings and the benefits, with, of course, the New Testament being more clear, and the Old Testament uh, giving us more types and shadows. All these blessings and benefits are now able to be dispensed 
to those who believe in Christ because of, what's, because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. That is, the testator has now died, and the blessings are enabled to take effect through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the blessings that Christ has promised us and that are now ours, all because He gave His life for us. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Likewise, He also took the cup, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Once the blood of Christ was shed for us, the blessings and promises of the covenant of grace were secured and guaranteed. But the death of the testator, of course, was necessary in order for that to happen. And then, as we mentioned, with the resurrection, those uh, blessings now get applied to us. Well, Jesus mentioned here in Luke 22 of a new covenant. Well, may kind of make us have us think that, well, maybe there was, was there an old covenant? Well, there is. This, uh, the old covenant doesn't refer to the covenant of works, however, but it refers to the covenant made through the law that was given to Israel. But we shouldn't understand uh, the terms old and new to mean that these were two different covenants. There is, after all, really only one covenant of grace. But the terms old and new refer not to a new covenant, but to how that one covenant has been administered. And so again, the confession in paragraph 5 begins this, this covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. And so it's the same covenant, but two different administrations or dispensations. Old, the old way was the law, and the new way is through the gospel. Well, this also corresponds to the testaments that we noted above. In other words, we can speak of Old Covenant and New Covenant, as well as Old Testament and New Testament. But again, there's still one testament or one covenant. The Old Covenant <clears throat> refers to the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, and the New Covenant is the realization and the outworking of the covenant of grace in the New Testament. But we should also uh, need to be careful that we don't confuse the term dispensation that we're using here with the teaching of what's called dispensationalism, which of course is a popular, uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, teaching in, uh, in many evangelical churches today. <clears throat> dispensationalism teaches that there are seven different dispensations or covenant periods and that in each one of them, they have their own set and term, uh, they have their own set of, of terms and conditions for salvation. Dispensationalism then divides up and separates believers from, uh, from the time of creation to the end of the age. It separates believers out according to these different epochs. Basically saying that one believer in one dispensation is not saved the same way that another believer in another dispensation is. But this doesn't do justice to God's covenant of grace. 
RP testimony affirms that we reject the teaching that salvation is or has been available in any other way than by the grace offered and confirmed in Christ. There is only one way. Jesus mentions that in in, uh, John uh, 14, 7, that He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. No one is saved but through Jesus Christ. And so salvation has always come through Christ by grace alone. It's, It's the same way for the Old Testament saints, and it is also the same for the New Testament saints. It's the same for us today as well. Only through faith in Christ. God's covenant of grace leading to salvation is one covenant. But again, it has been administered differently in the past than it is in the present. In the old dispensation, or in the old covenant under the law, that we see in the Old Testament, the covenant was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. And so there were types and signs and symbols given to the people in the Old Testament to point them to salvation in Christ by God's grace. For example, the promises which God gave to Abraham that God would make Abraham a great nation, that he would bless him and make his name great, and that he would be a blessing to the nations, these promises had a fulfillment, obviously in in earthly terms and realities, but they all ultimately pointed toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true and fullest fulfillment of them is in Christ. When Abraham believed God, and believe these promises would come about, Abraham was actually believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation by God's amazing grace. Now it's true that Abraham didn't know the name of Jesus, and he didn't know, okay, this Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't had no knowledge of that. But as the writer to the Hebrews notes in Hebrews 11 saying, By faith he, that is Abraham, dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so here we see that Abraham, in faith, sees through the earthly land, right? God said you're going to, your descendants are going to have a land, and here's the land that I'm going to give to them. But he sees through that land, and he looks forward to the greater fulfillment, the heavenly land, the heavenly country that he will receive through Jesus Christ. And again, he didn't know specifically the name of Jesus, but he looked forward to the coming of the Lord's uh, fulfill the, the greatest fulfillment of the Lord's promise. And even the sacrifices, of course, we know as the, of the Old Testament, they all pointed toward Jesus. Even from the beginning, uh, when God first made a covering uh, for Adam and Eve and uh, with the animal skins to cover their shame, demonstrating to them that the shedding of blood is necessary for the covering of sins, right? Right after they had uh, sinned and he had condemned them before he pushed them out of the garden. And so each time we see the faithful people of God offering sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, they're doing so looking forward in faith 
to that once for all perfect sacrifice in Christ Jesus. The Passover lamb, of course, was the epitome of this. Right, the the Passover lamb that, that was slain, and the 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 blood was uh, placed on the the, uh, the doorposts uh, to mark the house uh, as and uh, so that death could be spared of those inside, and the judgment of the Lord would pass over that house. But what does the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, what does His blood do for us? It enables us, it enables the judgment of God to pass over us and to protect us and to deliver us and give us salvation. And so these sacrifices were a type of that better and more perfect sacrifice that would come about in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the law itself, the Ten Commandments, pointed toward Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law would point the people to Christ, so that they would be justified by faith. The moral law showed the people that they needed a Savior from their sin. The judicial laws showed that they needed a righteous king. And the ceremonial laws showed their need for holiness. As we considered this morning, faithful obedience to these laws, again, pointed them to Christ. And though these signs and symbols were only types and shadows of the real thing, well, they weren't any less efficacious than the real thing that later came. Again, the confession paragraph continues that they were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. So even though we read in Hebrews 10 that it's it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, those in the Old Testament who in faith offered up these sacrifices did indeed receive the forgiveness of sins. Not because of any power in the blood of the bulls and goats, but because their faith was looking forward to that once for all sacrifice in Christ. And so the Old Testament saints had true faith. And they also were saved by God's grace, just as we are. This is reinforced by the confession, noting that this was done by the operation of the Spirit. Now, many today think the Holy Spirit only came at Pentecost. And it's true that the Spirit came in a fuller, more uh, complete fashion. But the Holy Spirit has been at work since the beginning, the very beginning. And has been at work in the hearts of believers, convicting them of sin and restoring within them the joy of salvation, as uh, David even sings about in Psalm 51. It talks about the Spirit of God to uh, renew your spirit in me and, and restore that joy of salvation. So again, the Old Testament saints had true faith as they look forward to Christ. And this is what makes the New Testament saints, <clears throat> and of course those of us who believe today, this actually makes us uh, in a much privileged position. Because we no longer look forward, but we can actually look back on the historical fact of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. And so the covenant is new. Again, it's the same covenant of grace, but it's newer. It's fuller. 
And it's perfectly complete in Jesus Christ as it's now being administered through Christ. And Jesus, as the testator, gave his life to secure these promises for us and to give them uh, to us through his spirit as a gracious gift. The confession goes on in paragraph 6. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jew and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. And so the death of the testator has now come. And so the blessings and the promises are given to those who believe. Gone are the types and the shadows. We now have the reality in Jesus. Now it's important to note that, as the confession does, that there are still signs and symbols or ordinances which dispense the grace of God, the preaching of the word, and the sacraments. And these ordinances are much more simplistic. They're fewer in number. That is, we don't have all kinds of cleansing rituals and, uh, and things that the, the God gave to Israel. We just have two uh, basic sacraments and then, of course, the simple preaching of the word in which God administers, uh, works His grace through those things. But all the focus and glory is not on the actual ordinances or the signs, but it's on Jesus. Again, Hebrews 8, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. It's better because it's more full and complete. But there's also another difference. Whereas in the Old Testament, the signs and symbols and ordinances were given to Israel... Well, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the efficacy is for those of every nation, both Jew and Gentile. And again, this ultimately becomes the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is how Christ and fulfillment of that promise, the gospel going to the nations, is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham long ago. The promise of many descendants. Be leading to a great and becoming a great nation. Well, that ultimately points to the church, the, the bride of Christ that uh, go, goes stretches beyond national boundaries and has representatives from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the promise of a land to call their own is ultimately fulfilled not in some earthly real estate in, in the Middle East, but in the glorious heavenly kingdom that awaits us when Christ returns. So these are better promises, because they have eternal significance. And these are the promises of the covenant of grace that Jesus Christ secured for us. And so we must remember, that there is great unity in God's covenant. Yes, there are differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how it was administered. With the Old Testament being filled with types and shadows, and that aid of the people in their faith as they look forward to the greater fulfillment. And this greater fulfillment would come in the New Testament with the fullest revelation of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
But despite these differences in administration, it's still one and the same covenant of grace, mediated for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the privileged place and time in which we stand, we can now look back on what Christ has already accomplished for us, and we can enjoy both now and on into the future, even forever, the blessings and benefits of this one covenant of grace. Truly praise God for His covenant and His covenant faithfulness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. O Lord God in heaven, we just praise You and thank You for this reminder of the truth of Your Word, that there is but one covenant of grace that spans both testaments of Your Word. And that there is no difference in salvation between those in the Old Testament and those in the New Testament and even today. That we are all saved by faith through grace. And that you are merciful toward us as we look upon Christ. Those in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ's coming. We looking back on what he has already accomplished and now looking forward to when He comes again in power and glory to usher in the fullness of His kingdom and the fullest uh, blessings of the covenant uh, promises uh, that would come yet. And so we just praise You and thank You, Father, for this reminder and that You would help us to remember these things because we know that there are many uh, differences um, that are just different views We just pray that you would help us to focus upon your word, to see the truth that is clearly here. And again, we praise you and thank you for the gift that you've given to us in this, the Lord's Day. That you have enabled us one day in seven, where we can rest from our usual labors, and that we can gather together with your people for worship, as we have been resting and fellowshipping and worshiping you this day. And now as we begin to look to the week that lies ahead, we pray that you would help us to remember the truth that we considered on this day. And that we would be strengthened and equipped to truly press on in the race that you have set before us to run. And that we would be mindful of your covenant and all the promises and the blessings that you have given to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray especially that you would help each of us to be faithful witnesses for your glory as we go out and do our usual labors and activities this week. And that there might be many who would ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. And that you would give us grace and the words and the wisdom to speak the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us to be such beacons of light in this community. And we pray that you would... Do all these things, not for us, but for your glory and honor and praise. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.